Well, welcome everybody for joining us. I'm Father Chris Alar. I am one of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception here at the National Shrine. And we welcome you from around the world to join us for a very special day. We are in Marian Week, and Marian Week is the opportunity for us, if you're gonna do a novena, asking the Blessed Mother to help you. Again, the grace comes from God. It doesn't come from Mary, but it goes through her. She's an advocate. This is the time to do it. Now, last Sunday, August 15th, we were celebrating the Assumption. And every year on the August 15th, we, we do that with the Assumption. But on August the 22nd, one year, one year, one week later, we celebrate the coronation. Although this year falls on a Sunday, so we don't liturgically celebrate the coronation. But the point is this, it's Marian week. And this is the time that we need her. We need her help. They say a priest cannot be a priest without a devotion to Mary. And so today we're gonna to continue talking about the role of Mary, and I wanna really focus on the assumption and the coronation, because we're smack dab in the middle of it, and there are so many misunderstandings about this part of our faith. All right, now, we have in Mary, we have several aspects of what we call Marian dogmas. Now, Brother Mark is running to get my glasses right now, so he can't show you the first slide. But the first slide basically tells us the Marian dogmas. They are Mary, the mother of God, Mary and her perpetual virginity, the immaculate conception, and the assumption. This is important. These are the Marian dogmas. Now, while the coronation is not a Marian dogma, the assumption is, which means as Catholics, we must believe what has been given to us by God from the church. Well, Father, it's not in the Bible. Well, no, okay, I'm going to be in trouble here without my glasses today. So, uh, you know, can I borrow those 2.0 readers? Somebody had those. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, somebody has 2.0 readers, so I'm going to try to take those. But the point is that we have in our faith a gift from God in his church. Thank you very much. <laughs> we appreciate. This is what happens when you go live, everybody. So in our faith, in our church, we have a gift from God. And the church teaches that her job is to reveal to us the mysteries of God. And we do it through sacred apostolic tradition as well as scripture. And this is where we get the knowledge and understanding of Mary. So let us keep going because the coronation, although it's not a dogma, completes the octave. An octave is an eight-day celebration of a huge feast. Now think about eight days here. You have the 15th of August, which is the Assumption, day one. That's the first day of the octave, the Assumption, the 15th. 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, 22nd. The eighth day is the coronation, and the two are linked, and that's what we're going to talk about today. They are so important, and we're, again, as I said, right in the middle of these. And so, wow, these 2.0s are better than my 1.25s. <laughs> So, to those who always say, where is that in the Bible? I said this last week, and I want to stress this again. 
If you heard my homily, or I think it was my Thursday video, don't, please don't turn us off because you're gonna be like, well, Father, I've already heard this whole talk. No, I'm just gonna repeat a couple highlights, and then we're gonna go into all brand new stuff. But basically, your answer when somebody says, where is that in the Bible, needs to be because something is specifically not mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean it's false, all right? The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that's the bedrock of Christian belief, all right? The Bible doesn't record Peter or Paul's journey to Rome. The Bible says nothing about Peter and Paul's journeying back to Rome, but that's where they were martyred. So this is important. The last chapter of John says not everything Jesus said and did was in the Bible. Does that make it unimportant? No, it makes it very important. And because these things are not in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean they're false and evil and, and, and demonic. We get these letters all the time. It's not in the Bible, therefore it's of Satan. No, just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that. It means that we got to turn to the sacred tradition of the church given by God for such things. All right, the example I used last week, I'd like to repeat. What does the Bible say about in vitro fertilization? Nothing. What does the Bible say about human cloning? Nothing. What does the Bible say about artificial intelligence? Nothing. What does the Bible say about nuclear war? Nothing. Does these mean these things are unimportant? Does it mean as Catholics that we can say, well, you know, nuclear war doesn't exist because it's not in the Bible? We can't say that. that that's humanly illogical, and it's, 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 it goes against absolute human reasoning. These things are extremely important. As members of God's children, we have to understand, and that's why he gives us the church to explain these things to us and sacred tradition. That's the three legs of our stool, scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. Now, this is very important because these are moral issues that need to be addressed. And they didn't even exist at the time the Bible was written. And so this is why Christ establishes church to guide us in these areas that develop over time. Artificial intelligence didn't exist at the time of Jesus. In virtual fetalization didn't exist. Human cloning didn't exist. Nuclear war didn't exist. They do now. It makes sense. That's why you need the church to guide you through these times. So the church isn't man-made. It's God-made. And as Jesus passed his authority to the apostles, they gave it to us. This is why apostolic tradition, not man-made tradition, apostolic from Jesus to the apostles to us is in the Bible. Where's that in the Bible, Father? St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, hold fast to the traditions I teach you both oral and written. As we've said before, sola scriptura is not in the Bible, but apostolic tradition is. Now, we'll follow St. Paul when in, in this. So, okay, I've repeated that before. You've heard me say this before. Now, let's get into the new stuff here. Now, St. Paul basically would say it is fitting because of this tradition that Mary would have been assumed body and soul into heaven. It's sacred tradition. According to the traditions of the church, especially in the East, St. Thomas was not around when Mary supposedly 
passed away. Now, the church doesn't say whether Mary died or not. I'll talk about that in a minute. The church doesn't tell us whether she physically died or in the East, they used the word dormition, which means to sleep. Maybe she fell into a sleep, okay? But the point was, tradition says Thomas was not around. And I laughed last week. I said, he should be the patron of tardiness because he was, he was like my cameraman Giuseppe when I try to get him to work by eight. He's always bargaining with me to come at nine. And so he's the patron saint of tardiness because he wasn't at the resurrection when Jesus resurrected and came to them in the upper room. He was missing when Mary supposedly was there in the tomb, they were going to put her into the ground. They opened the tomb because Peter, or excuse me, um, Thomas said, I want to see her. He was three days late. And Thomas said, I want to see the Blessed Mother. So they opened the tomb. She wasn't there. It was lilies in her place. Now, the difference though, was this is not a resurrection. It's not a resurrection, so let's talk about this. And let's look at our next slide as Brother Mark shows it. Here's the tomb being opened and her body not being there. That's a great, great drawing or painting from, from centuries ago. And it leads us to the fittingness of this solemnity, which uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, I think, described beautifully. Let's go to our next slide and read the quote of St. Robert Bellarmine. <clears throat> For those of you at home, or if you're here with us, you can get it on your cell phone. So St. Robert Bellarmine said, who could believe that the new ark of holiness, the dwelling place of God, the womb of Mary, the temple of the Holy Spirit would be allowed to crumble into dust, right? I shudder at the very thought that the virginal flesh of which God was conceived and born, which nourished him and cared him for him, carried him, should have turned into ashes or been given as food for worms. Doesn't that make sense? You're going to have the womb that brought the God-man into the world and it's going to be eaten by worms. It makes no sense. We have to use human reason sometimes. It is impossible that every single conceivable issue ever faced in the history of mankind could be fit into one book. It's impossible. That's why the last chapter of the last gospel of John says if everything ever said and did by Jesus was to be written down, all the books of the world could not contain it. That doesn't mean those things are unimportant. That's why we have sacred tradition. Now, let's talk about the assumption and then the coronation. The assumption means what? To take up, all right? It's what really means, but to me, what it really means is hope. Here's the thing. Why is that wrong? How dare you blaspheme with this belief in Mary assumed into heaven? The Catholic faith is, is of Satan. You're blasphemers. What is wrong with having hope? Is hope blasphemy? We have to understand what the word blasphemy means. Blasphemy is going against the teaching of the church. It doesn't mean because it's not in the Bible that it's blasphemy. 
Blasphemy and heresy means something that taught that it goes directly contrary to the teachings of the church. People don't know what blasphemy and heresy means. They just throw it out there. Blasphemy and heresy doesn't mean just because it's not in the Bible. Because that doesn't make it wrong. As I said, the, the wrongness of abortion isn't in the Bible. Does that mean that if you support, or excuse me, that you don't support abortion, you're blasphemers? Because it's not in the Bible. So you can't have a viewpoint on abortion because it's not in the Bible. Therefore, it's blasphemy. Well, that's insane. We don't hold such illogical reasoning. And so let's look at this. <clears throat> All of Mary was taken in her fullness to the love of the Trinity. Although she's in heaven, she's still here with us. Why? Because God is here with us. And she's united and always will be united to her son. That bond is unbreakable. She followed the pattern of her son. And the fact that she triumphed over death, and so will we if we follow him like she did. She's just an example. She's not the savior. She's not our God. She's not divine. She's an example that we, if somebody climbed Mount Everest before you, okay, and you want to climb Mount Everest, the goal is to get to the top. And you meet somebody who's already been there that traveled up to the top. Don't you think it'd be a little smart to say, hey, next time you do it, you mind if I come along? Because I haven't done this before. I need a little help. Does that mean that you're worshiping this person? No, you're asking them for some help. That's our use of Mary. Although, and she <clears throat> followed that pattern. She made it to the top of Everest. She followed her son, triumphing. Remember, it's to Jesus through Mary. Mary followed Jesus. And if we follow her, she'll lead us to him. It's just like the person on Mount Everest. Somebody who's done it, you follow them, you'll get to your goal, the top of Mount Everest. Follow Mary, you'll get to your goal. What's the goal? Jesus Christ. And so people don't get this. Mary's assumption gives us hope that our life has more meaning than it does on this earth. Mary's assumption gives us that. If we want to accomplish a task, go to someone, turn to someone who's already accomplished that task. It's kind of like um, I was a wrestler in school. You can see I'm not a basketball player. I was a wrestler. And, and, and for me, at the time that we were in high school wrestling, the big American champion was Andre Metzger. Now, Andre Metzger was world-class All-American. He was the model. He had won a world championship. Am I going to say, well, gee, you can't help me because you're not God? It's insane. I'm a wrestler. I want to get help. I want to know. I need an example. I need somebody who can give me and show me the way to become a champion. Mary is the way to show me to become a saint better than a champion. That's her purpose. And so when we look at this, this is what we look forward to in the creed. What does the creed say? The resurrection of the body and the life of the world, life everlasting. Resurrection is real. And 
It will happen if we follow her example, because she knows how to get to Jesus. The fruits of this mystery is a happy death. The assumption, the fruits of the assumption is a happy death. And that's the single most important thing you'll ever have in your life. You see, if we follow an example, if we're going to do it on our own, we don't need the church. We don't need to listen to anything the church says. You might go down the wrong road. Why not go down the road that's already been established by his own mother? I'm telling you, Jesus is not going to let his own mother lead you astray. Not going to happen. The church therefore made the assumption a holy day of obligation and a dogma, showing its importance, meaning we must follow it. It was established, the church was established by Christ. That means when the church established the assumption, since the church was established by Christ, it's not going to mislead you. It's not going to be blasphemy. Why in the world would the church established by Jesus teach you blasphemy? It's insane to think that way. And so Christ tells us we need to follow the church and we should follow what it teaches. And the assumption is part of that. In other words, it just isn't a casual aspect of theology. It's a core piece of our faith, the assumption. So why do we know this? All right, in the early church, there were many writings talking about Mary passing into heaven. They said that the apostles were still alive and they were gathered together and witnessed the event. They were still alive. But most of the writings, early centuries on Mary's assumption, came from the East, the East Church. Though they didn't refer to the word assumption, they did call it dormition, like falling asleep. And there's many beautiful icons that we have about this that show us this event as a teaching tool. Now, at no point, though, as the church officially said whether or not Mary died. Let's read our next slide. Here's what the catechism says. The most blessed Virgin Mary, when the course of her earthly life was completed, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory, where she already shares in the glory of her son's resurrection, anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body. Did you hear that part? Anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body. That's us. The assumption is showing that a human can join in this heavenly glory. It started with Mary. Oh no, Father, it started with Jesus. Yes, but now it's to the pure creature. Jesus wasn't a pure creature. This is Mary's role. So it's interesting, in light of the fact that Mary was immaculate without sin and did not need to suffer the consequences of sin, which is what? Death. Remember, the wage of sin is death. She may have died in imitation of her son. So this is the belief that the church teaches you're allowed to have. You can follow the East or the West. In the West, we more believe that she did not die. In the East, that she did die. Both are allowed in church teaching. This is, though, speculative. We don't know. Many persons believe that Mary did not die 
from the very fact that sacred tradition refers to her undergoing an assumption, but not a resurrection. If she would have died, we would have called it a resurrection. But I don't think so, because resurrection means you resurrect of your own power. She wouldn't have done it of her own power. It would have been God's power. So being resurrected would have implied death, whereas the word assumption does not. So I, Father Don, and others personally believe she did not die. But others believe in imitation of her son, she may have died. Church allows you to have both. Now, Dr. Stackpole, Robert Stackpole, has some interesting points I want to share with you. He says, why do we believe in the assumption if it's not directly in the Bible? Because the church guides us. Now, in discerning such things, the church is guided by the Holy Spirit. Remember, where's the church in the Bible? It's all over. Jesus told Peter, I'm establishing the church. You're the rock. What about 1 Timothy 3.15? The pillar and bulwark of the truth is the church. The church is the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. Does that mean then you follow it, that you're a blasphemer? It's not possible. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, even though sometimes we have stupid members and sometimes we make dumb decisions. It doesn't take away from the truth. But what led the church to this declaring the assumption is dogma in 1950. All right. Yes, it's true that many early Christians did not mention the word assumption. The fact is this, and I said this last week, the very fact that there's no remains of Mary that have ever been claimed, not in Ephesus, where she lived with John, not in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, not in Bethlehem, where she, or, uh, Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth, where they lived with Jesus. No town has ever claimed the relics of Mary. Why? Because they don't exist. You know, the very first century Christians were all about relics. That's why I always laugh when people come into our shrine and they see us Catholics kissing the toe bone of St. Faustina. They're all like, you Catholics are weird. We're following first century tradition. You know, in the Colosseum, when the first saints were eaten by lions or torn apart by wild beasts, you know what the, you know what the first Christians did? The Romans thought they were nuts. The Romans just threw the bodies out. The Christians went and gathered up their remains, their bones, and they honored them as relics, not worship. Okay? You're going to be told that. But they would take their relics, their remains, and they would preserve them. This is the first century Catholics, 1,400, 1,500 years before the first Protestant walked this earth. That's what they were doing. They were honoring the relics and the remains of the saints that were eaten by lions. Ask the rec look at the records in the Colosseum. All right? Those church relics to the church were very important. They were highly prized. Even the bones of Peter and Paul. What about them? They were known and preserved in Rome. We have the relics of Peter and Paul but not Mary. 
Now there might be a second or a third class relic, which means part of her veil or something that touched her hair, but not her bones. The tradition of her assumption goes back centuries, a thousand years, more than a thousand years before the first Protestant churches. But the Protestants are going to tell us we have no idea what we're talking about in the Assumption of Mary. We're blasphemers. Really? The belief of the Assumption existed a thousand years, more than a thousand years before your church. And you're going to say it's blasphemy. Doesn't make sense. Since then, no saint or church father ever disputed the doctrine of the Assumption until the Reformation. That should tell you something. The church believes because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost, the church, the people of God, possess a truth that was given at Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. It's called affectio or inclinatio fide, which means you're going to be guided by the truth. Now, what about the claim that there's no mention of the assumption of Mary in the Bible? All right. Scott Hahn, he does well. Him and others say there is reference to the assumption in the Bible. The book of Revelation was certainly an example. Okay, why? What was first? Mary's assumption or the writing of the Bible? What came first? Mary's assumption. Mary's life was ended way before the book of Revelation was written. Book of Revelation was written at the end of the first century, like 90 or 100 AD. Mary would have died in the 40s or the 50s, so many decades before. So the church fathers compared Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant versus the Ark of the Old. Now, they said the Old Ark contained the Word of God on stone tablet. The new Ark of the Covenant contained the Word of God in the flesh. That's Mary. Now, the old Ark contained the bread, the manna from heaven. The new Ark contained the actual Eucharist, the real bread, Jesus Christ, in the womb of Mary. Thus, it was already believed in the church that Mary was the new Ark. This was already believed. And in fact, here's what's fascinating. Do you know at the time that the book of Revelation was written by John, let's say 90 or 100 AD, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, right? How? The Ark of the Covenant had been lost for centuries before John ever wrote the book of Revelation. So when John talks about the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Revelation, the old ark was gone. What's he talking about? The new ark. The old ark had been lost. The Jews didn't know where it was. But now let's read a Revelation 11.9. Let's go to our slide. <clears throat> then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavenly hail. This is Revelation 11:19. Now, 
it seems the ark's been found. John's writing about the ark, but the ark had been lost for centuries. Now, let's look what Revelation says in the very next statement. Revelation 12:1. Let's show that on the screen. Just right after saying, John says, I see the ark in the sky, the next sentence, and a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child. We're going to jump ahead to verse 5 now. She was with child. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. All right. Who's going to rule over all the nations and all the world? Jesus. So that's who that book of Revelation has to be referring to. But didn't it just say there was a woman who was about to give birth to that child who is going to rule all the nations? Yes, it does. So that child has to be Jesus. If that child is Jesus and they describe the child's mother, she's got to be Mary. There's no other way around it. So many say, well, wait a minute, Father. That woman is a symbol of Israel and now of the church, the new Israel. Yes, this is true. She has a crown of 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. Very true. But the interpretation doesn't con contradict. Which one is right then? Is this Mary individually or is it the new Israel, the church? It doesn't matter. They are both correct. Why? Because the ancient fathers tell us so. And they know better than we do. The church fathers said that it was not uncommon in ancient Jewish literature to use a double symbol, the individual and an entire group. You want to know what I mean here? All right. For example, it is very likely that in Isaiah 53, he talks about the suffering Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. And he says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know what the church fathers tell us? It was also symbolizing the people of Israel. So wait a minute, is it Jesus or is it the people of Israel? It's both. Is it Mary or is it the church? It's both. Mary's the mother of the church. And so this is why Isaiah in 53 talks about the suffering Messiah representing Israel. They suffered like Jesus. In a similar way, Mary, the mother of the church, is used in the book of Revelation to symbolize the vocation of Israel, which is to become the church. We became the church from the people of Israel. It all fits together. Now it goes on to say there is hope because this church is destined to be in heaven. Beautiful. The church made the connection on this. Psalm 132 verse 8 gives us the answer of the mystery of this heavenly woman ark. Let's look at it. Next passage, next slide. 
Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to, <clears throat> to thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy might. So the psalm says, Lord, go to your resting place, which is where? Heaven. Thou and the ark, meaning you and the ark. Well, let's look at this. Is it going to be a box of wood in heaven? Or is it going to be a fleshly womb that housed the new ark of the covenant? The word. All right. After the Lord arose from the dead, he took with him into heavenly glory the true ark, the body of his mother. That's what the assumption means. For just as the ancient Israelites believed that the original ark was made from incorruptible wood, this passage talks about foreshadowing the bodily incorruption given to Mary as the ark of her risen son. Wow. Today you're going back to seminary with me in Mariology course. This is called typology, meaning how Mary is seen as the new ark. This typology is very important in theology because it explains the role of Mary. And you join me today in this very important understanding of what they teach me in seminary. I'm honored to be able to take you to seminary with me without charging you a dime or making you drive an hour and a half like I had to the Holy Apostles. We're saving you a lot of trouble. All we ask is you join with us in your home study to be part of this. Because when you learn this, it becomes like a jigsaw puzzle. It all fits together. It's amazing. Now, in spite of all of this, I just gave you, the church says we still need more. We still need more to declare it a dogma. So what did they have? It's called an analogy of faith. What does that mean? Father, what's an analogy of faith? What I'm trying to show you here is that the church knows what she's doing on this stuff. She knows what she's doing when it comes to the truth and defining theology. Every doctrine accepted by the church has to fit with every other revealed doctrine of God. In other words, there must be harmony, not contradiction. Does the doctrine of Mary's assumption or the dogma fit with our belief as a whole? Yes, it's not blasphemy. There's nothing contradictory to the teachings of Scripture in this teaching. First of all, it fits with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Why? We know from the book of Genesis that one of the results of the fall of Adam and Eve was suffering and death. The wage of sin is death. But Mary did not share in this fallen condition. How do we know that? It's in Scripture. Gabriel said, full of grace. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Full of grace, is it impossible to be a sinner? Now, that doesn't mean Mary didn't meet a Savior. 
We're always accused that if we say Mary was without sin, that means you say Mary didn't need a savior. No, it isn't. Because if it takes a God to forgive your sin, it also takes a God to prevent you from falling into sin in the first place. That's the goal here to understand. Now, her soul was enriched from the moment of her conception with grace of the Holy Spirit. We know this. So she needed a savior, but she was preserved from bodily corruption because bodily corruption is what? A result of sin. The reason our bodies decay, sin. That's why you see some of these saints, they have an incorruptible body. If you haven't seen my talk on YouTube, I did it probably three or four months ago. It's called the, um, the Rule of the Saints. You can Google it on YouTube, and I did a whole talk on the saints. I think the incorruptibles are fascinating because it really shows a miracle. Where's the news? I don't know. All right. Now, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was declared in 1854, and now the Assumption was declared in 1950, but they fit together. Most importantly, the and all this is true. It fits, it fits, it fits. But I want to keep going to how the church declared the Assumption because most of all, it explains Easter. It fulfills Easter. What are you talking about, Father? Easter has nothing to do with Mary. It's about a resurrected Jesus. Ah. The good news that the apostles proclaimed to the world was what? You're all going to yell, Jesus is risen. Isn't that what we see on the night of the Easter vigil? We say, Jesus, he is risen. He is truly risen. Do you know what the apostles proclaimed? Not that. Blasphemy, Father. <laughs> Blasphemy. Now, not so fast. The apostles proclaimed to the world not that Christ was risen, not saying that he didn't rise, rise remember? You can't prove a negative. It was that he is bringing the whole mystical body on earth to join him one day in heavenly glory. That's what they proclaimed. So of course, yes, he is risen, but I should have said maybe more accurately, that's not all they proclaimed. Maybe that's a better way to say it. They didn't stop at saying he is risen. The apostles proclaimed he is risen, and now we, as the body on earth, will be joined with him in heavenly glory for all eternity. This is what St. Peter says. Don't believe me? Father, this is blasphemy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Quote, We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What's Peter talking about here? Now it's possible for you to be assumed into heaven. Now it's possible for you to enter heaven. That's what the message is here. The gospel is not only that Jesus rose, but his body, which is the church, will also rise. Wow. If we live in union with him, following the example of Mary, we too shall be raised and glorified and brought into heaven, just like him. 
body and soul. This is the hope of the resurrection. I'm sorry, the assumption. Because Mary shows she did it before us. The sign of hope is that Mary gives us an example that all humans can share in the resurrection. This would mean nothing to us. If Jesus resurrected, hey, you know, that's great. But if, you know, you ever, you ever run into that where you're all excited because something happened to you and you tell it to somebody and they're like, oh, gee, that's great. <laughs> because they don't get to share in it. I mean, it, it's, it's like, okay, good for you. You know? And, and it's like, all right. Well, if Jesus resurrected and said, I'm up here, and none of the people down there got to join him, where's the glory? Where's the grace? Where's the joy? We can now join with him. This is the proof of Mary's assumption. And do you know St. Faustina? St. Faustina talked about the assumption. She said there are many ways, basically in, in this diary, this is the diary of St. Faustina, if you, don't, if you don't know it. There are so many ways that Mary was honored by Faustina. Many, many ways. Praying the rosary. She celebrated Mary's titles, queen of the apostles, queen of the angels. The liturgical feasts. Marian novenas, Marian consecration. Many forms of Marian devotion, St. Faustina did it. It's all in here. But she specifically wrote about the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. Concerning the Assumption, she made four entries on August 15th, 1934, 35, 36, and 37. Let's read one of those. Let's go to our next slide. Diary Passage 1244 from 1937. During meditation, God's presence pervaded me keenly, and I was aware of the Virgin Mary's joy at the moment of her assumption. Towards the end of the ceremony carried out in honor of the Mother of God, I saw the Virgin Mary, and she said to me, Oh, how very pleased I am with the homage of your love. Not worship. Honor. This is in the diary. Mark Shea is a writer um, that I've read some. He has some interesting points I want to share. He says the revelation, the book of Revelation, is written by who? John, who above all wanted to emphasize that Mary is our mother. Above all, that was his goal. She's mother, not only of Jesus, but of all the baptized. That's why Jesus gave Mary to him on the cross. If Jesus had any biological brothers and sisters, he could not have given Mary to John on the cross, because we know John was not his brother. Brother in the ancient language, it means could be cousins, near relatives, close cousins, stepchildren step-cousins, step-brothers and sisters. So when John gave Jesus, excuse me, when Jesus gave John Mary, he said, take her into your home. What is your home? Your heart. To the Jews, the heart was the home. 
And so Jesus is giving Mary to all us baptized. Why? Because John was the disciple who we are. And this is what he said here. Remember the tradition of the assumption, although you can't find it directly in Scripture, precedes Scripture. The assumption happened before and was tradition before the first Bible passages were written. All right. It's the same with the Mass. What came first, the Mass or the Bible? The Mass. The Mass happened decades before the first line of Scripture was ever written. The Mass predates the Bible. The Bible was actually written to be read at the Mass. Did you know that? The church does not read Revelation 12 about the woman in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, and then say, let's pretend this refers to Mary and invent some story that she was assumed. No, the assumption occurred in the 40s and the 50s, as I said before, well before the Bible was written. Sacred tradition is true, even if it can vary. I said it varies in the East. They believe Mary died in the West. We kind of believe she didn't. But it means that it is true. How it happened, we don't know, but we know it's true. Do you know the earliest heresies of the church? Do you know the earliest controversies in the church? Today, they're all about Mary. Do you know the earliest controversies and heresies of the church had nothing to do with Mary? Everybody was on the same page with Mary. You know what the first heresies were about? Jesus. Him as a person. He's divine, but not human. He's human, but not divine. All the heresies involved Jesus. There were none about Mary till the Reformation. I find that ironic. And what's interesting about this is that this assumption is an example that it only became a problem after the Reformation. Devotion to Mary assumed into heaven was tradition. They found it in tombs as far as away in Spain in the 300s, early 300s. Now here's the point. That means it had already been long accepted for it to get across the Mediterranean from the Holy Land, across the Mediterranean into Spain by the only the third century, beginning of the third century. It means it was already established thoroughly. Nobody rebuked St. Ephraim in 373 when he declared this. Everybody supported it. So that's got to tell you something. In Scripture, you will not find, as we said, whether Mary died or not. You will not find in Scripture whether Mary was buried or not. But she either had to die or not die or either be buried or not buried. One of them had to happen. Because it's not in Scripture, that means neither happened. Well, you can't have either being buried or not being buried. It has to be one of the two. Well, it's not in Scripture. Well, okay, the fact that she was buried is not in Scripture. Okay, well, the fact that she wasn't buried is also not in Scripture. You see the point? This is important. You will not find this. What did we do find, though, is the church defined this. The church said it. In Munificitissimus Deus, the church says, this is Pius XII, 
Finally, it is our hope that belief in Mary's bodily assumption into heaven will make our belief in our own resurrection stronger and render it more effective. Again, why is that so bad? Hmm. Mary's destiny is a sign of our destiny. She's an icon of the church. You know, um, a model disciple. You follow Christ like she did, you'll get the reward like she did. The triune God wills to grant us this, what he already granted her, body, soul, and spirit united with him. Let's look at the next slide because this is Christian tradition. Long before any Protestant religion existed, you know what existed? Look up here on our shrine. You see that picture? Mary in heaven, the crown, the coronation, which we're going to talk about in a minute. These artworks and paintings of Mary being crowned and assumed into heaven existed long before any Protestant uh, religion. Long before. The coronation is where I want to finish. That happens the week after the assumption, August 22nd. That octave, it shows the bond between the two, which we're going to explain right now. And it's the time to do a novena. If you're going to do a novena asking for Mary's help, like for me, it's Mary Undoer of Knots or Our Lady of Good Success, do it now. And the octave that we're in, between the 15th, the Assumption, and the 22nd, the Coronation. So we're almost done, actually. We're, we're way more than half, but let's take our break here in the shrine. But for you at home, we're going to show a video. And we're going to show you a video that shows the link between the Assumption and the Coronation. It, gives, it talks about the Novena Prayer. And on that slide or this video, there's a Novena Prayer. So you can pray with us at home. Pray that little novena prayer because afterwards I'm going to come back and explain the coronation. So the video is a little less than three minutes. So let's see what Scott Hahn has to tell us. Having celebrated the Feast of the Assumption of Mary on August 15th, you know, when Jesus takes her up into heaven, and it's important, I think, to distinguish between the ascension of our Lord who rises to heaven to his glorious enthronement by the power of his own divinity and the assumption of Mary. She doesn't rise to heaven by her own power. She is assumed into heaven by the power of her son, that is the Holy Spirit. And so what is the point of the assumption of Mary? It isn't just to take her someplace where she can be tucked safely away and kept from her enemies. No, her assumption is really a means to an end. Well, what is the end? It is her coronation. It is her queenship. It is her function now, not only as the mother of Christ, as we read in Scripture, especially in Luke 1, but the mother of all of the children of God, as we read in Revelation 12, 17. She is the mother to, uh, for all of those who keep the commandments of God. So when we look at the Assumption on August 15th, and we see how it is ordered to the coronation and the feast of Mary's queenship, we recognize that, yes, she's our mother, and so she is closer to us than we are to ourselves, but she's also a queen mother. So in addition to the familiarity 
and the closeness and the intimacy that we have with the spiritual mother in the order of grace, we also recognize her dignity, her royalty, and the fact that she possesses by the fullness of grace that was given to her, a fullness of royal power that she is now wielding uh, as the mother of mercy, as the queen mother of the son of David. And so on the 22nd, I really want to encourage all of our friends and supporters and all of those who are watching this to join us, to unite our hearts in praying to our Lord through Our Lady and praying to Our Lady as our Queen Mother to gain for us the graces we need to be faithful to her son because that's what she's there for and that's what we're here for. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. As we said, that was a great clip from Scott Hahn connecting these two important days of Mary in our church calendar. Now we're gonna finish with talking about Mary, the Queen of Heaven. Ah, that's blasphemy again, because it's not in the Bible. No, we're gonna talk about that. And before we do, do we have the group of Jonathan Rumi's group with us here? Okay, this is awesome. Uh, a shout out and a welcome to the Jonathan Rumi fan club. And so it was funny because they said, well, you know, if we can't meet Jonathan Rumi, maybe we can do the next best thing, <laughs> meet his friend, Father Chris. And so my shout out goes out to Jonathan Rumi. What an amazing evangelizer through The Chosen, an incredible, great guy. I met him several years ago and have been friends with him ever since. And so we're honored to have you guys with us. Now, let's get into the queenship. And here, Dr. Edward Shree from Catholic Answers, Augustine Institute, he gives some real background here that's awesome. Now, he says, calling Mary queen of heaven and earth is scandal to many non-Catholics. The Bible doesn't directly mention there being a queen in God's kingdom. Catholics crowning Mary, he says, seems to detract from the royalty of Jesus, who alone is king of kings. Hmm, so far, makes sense. And how could Mary be a queen? She's not the wife of Jesus, she's only his mother. Ah, we got to go back to the Old Testament. First and second Kings introduces us to a new monarch whenever it does, and there's several times. Whenever first and second Kings introduces you to a new monarch in Judah, the book mentions the king's mother. 
always. Now, this is interesting. It shows the mother's intimate involvement in her son's royal reign. Here we're going to the Old Testament. The queen mother, meaning the queen, it's the queen in the old Davidic kingdom was not, you know, those kings had 700 wives. Solomon had 700 wives. So who was the queen? Was it the first wife, the last wife, the smartest wife, the prettiest wife? No, it was the mother. The queen mother is listed among the members of the royal court. Father, you're making this up. No. Go to Kings, 2 Kings 24.12. The queen mother is listed among the members of the royal court when King Joachim surrendered to the king of Babylon. Now, her royal office is described also by the prophet Jeremiah. He tells, he tells Jeremiah how the queen mother possessed a throne and a crown symbolic of her position of authority in the kingdom. Hmm. God directed the oracle about the upcoming fall of Judah. Now check out this. In scripture, as God was directing this fall of Judah, it was directed to both the king and his mother, not just the king. Let's read. Next slide. Jeremiah 13, verse 18 and 20. Listen to this. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north where the flock that was given you, no, where is the flock that was given you? your beautiful flock. We're not talking about Jesus and Mary here. We're talking about the earthly kingdom. But it's symbolic of the kingdom Jesus will fulfill. Let's look at this. Addressing both king and the queen mother, Jeremiah portrays her as sharing in her son's rule. Let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture. We see the queen mother in Bathsheba. What you see on your screen is Bathsheba. Who is Bathsheba? The wife of David. This is very important. And the mother of Solomon. So you had David married to Bathsheba and they had Solomon. Now, why is this important? All right. The importance of Bathsheba's position in the kingdom is seen when she became the queen mother. You got it. Notice how she was, Bathsheba, before being queen mother, when she was just the spouse of King David. This is from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 16. With, compare that with her dignity as the queen mother after Solomon was born in 1 Kings 2.19. What am I talking about here? As just the spouse, Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground when David entered. As the spouse of King David, she would just put her face on the ground. This is in striking contrast to how she was 
after Solomon became the king, her son. You see this? Her son, Solomon, then became the king. Now, <clears throat> look at her. After Solomon became the king and assumed the throne and she became queen mother, Bathsheba receives a glorious reception from the royal court. And upon meeting her royal son, making this up, Father? No. Let's go to our next slide. 1 Kings 2.19. Listen to this. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon, her son, to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. This is why bowing down does not mean worship. He's still the king. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. And that could be your prayer. Do not refuse me. This is the queen mother talking to her son, the king. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I shall not refuse you. Man, you get married to make a request to you or for you. You got basically the king saying, Mother, I'm not going to say no to you because her will's perfectly aligned. This is hugely important. Well, Father, this isn't talking about Jesus and Mary. Jesus comes from the line of David. This is how it was in the Davidic kingdom. King David, King Solomon went right down to Jesus. Jesus is the Davidic kingdom. Why would he change that? The honor of the queen mother. He didn't. This is very important. All right. This reveals the role of the queen mother. Jesus came, as I said, from the line of David. He's not going to change it. Note how the king rises and bows as she enters. Not worship. Please let me emphasize, because I know I'm going to get the letters. I'm not saying the king worshipped her. I said before a couple weeks ago, when I was in, an engineer in Detroit, and I worked in the automotive industry, and I would meet the Japanese businessmen. We just pulled our card out of our, out of our pocket and just handed it to them. To us, it was no big deal. They were greatly offended if you just took their card and just shoved it in your pocket. To the Japanese, this was who you are. So when I gave my business card to a Japanese businessman, he would take the card and he would bow. You think he's worshiping me? Of course not. It was a sign of honor, a sign of respect. And nothing to do with worship. The Japanese businessmen bowed. And that's all we hear about. You genuflect before a statue, therefore you're worshiping it. Or you bow in reverence. No, it's not worship. This 
is very important. Note how the king rose and bowed, not in worship. Noteth how, note how Bathsheba's seat was at the king's right hand. In the Bible, the right hand is a place of honor. How do we know this? It tells us in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand and I will place your enemies below your feet. Thus, the queen mother sitting at the king's right hand symbolizes her sharing in the royal court, the royal authority. And she holds the most important position in the kingdom, second only to the king. Jesus, God is king, marries at his right hand. This passage shows how the queen mother served as an advocate for the people. She came and she says, I have one request. And he says, ask mother, I will not refuse. It shows her carrying positions and petitions to the king. This is 1 Kings 2.17. Adonijah asked Bathsheba to take a petition for him to King Solomon. Well, I go directly to King Solomon. Well, okay, but it might help if you know his mother. She can help get you there. He says to her, pray, ask King Solomon. Now, what does pray mean? Pray doesn't mean worship. Pray means to ask. You pray to Mary, you worship her. No, we pray to Mary because we're asking her to help us with her son, just like Solomon and Bathsheba. Jesus comes from the Davidic line. He wouldn't change that. And he said he will not refuse her. So this request of Adonijah is to give him a wife. Ashabag, the Shunammite, might as his wife. This is 1 Kings 2.17. Now, sometimes God does say no because I asked for a wife. <laughs> and I said, Lord, send me the nicest, smartest, prettiest, kindest wife, right? The Lord said no. The God answers every prayer. He just always doesn't answer them in the way that's the way you want. He answers them in the way that is best for you. I've always said that if somebody told me in high school that I was gonna be a priest, I would have cried. <laughs> and now I can't imagine being anything else. Thank the Lord he didn't answer that prayer, probably for the wife. <laughs> he didn't answer that prayer, praise be to God. Because if I would have ran out, and I was very close to getting married on two occasions, very close, and something just kept in my heart, no. And I couldn't do it. I remember one girl I was with in North Carolina just couldn't believe it. Like, what's wrong? And I just couldn't do it. Now I know why. If now somebody told me I had to be married and leave the priesthood, I would cry. <laughs> because this is where I know God has me. Thank God he answered that prayer. And he gave me a wife, the church. 
He gave me a spouse, the faith, the church. He gave me the most beautiful spouse. I asked for a pretty spouse. I got the most beautiful spouse and all the children my mom could ever want for grandkids. Because man, she has way more spiritual grandchildren now than she ever would have had from a physical wife. I can't believe how beautiful you people are and the prayers that you have made for my mom. Thank you. It's a really tough time, but we're trusting, we're, we're holding on, we're persevering, and I believe this is purification for my family, for me, and Father Kaz said it clearly. He said, when we bring souls to Christ through the teaching of the church, we're going to pay a price. Okay. But I know my mom has a reward at the end because she's suffering with us. She's suffering in a lot of ways because of my priesthood. But the reward will be great. I have full trust and belief in that. And I know that from the bottom of my heart. Mary suffered tremendously as Jesus went to the cross. And my heart was pierced when I walked in my house and my mom asked who I was. She doesn't know me. And that's okay. Because we have a reward that is coming if we remain faithful and we follow the example of Mary. That's the meaning of what we are celebrating now in Marian week. It's a gift. And this is what the church teaches us. So basically, it's clear that when he went to Bathsheba, he recognized her queen mother position and influence with the king. Since the mother of the king always ruled as queen mother, we should also expect the mother of Jesus to play a role as the true queen mother in the true kingdom. Matthew emphasizes this. What does Matthew always call Jesus? the son of David. Matthew is making this link, the saying Jesus is from the Davidic kingdom. He calls him the son of, G of David, who is the true king of the Jews. With all the kingly imagery, it shouldn't be surprising to find the importance of the queen mother. Why? Matthew singles out that intimate relationship between the mother and her son. You know how? Five times. Matthew says, the child and his mother. The child and his mother. If it's only about Jesus, there would have been no mention. It just would have said the child. The child and his mother. Five times. Five times in those two short chapters, recalling that association between the queen mother and her royal son that comes from where? The line of David. The line of David. Just as the queen mother was constantly mentioned alongside the kings of Judah in first and second kings in the books of the Bible, the Bible, 
Mary is mentioned alongside her son, Jesus, by Matthew over and over. Luke does it too. Luke, quote, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So Luke is also establishing that Jesus comes from the line of David, where the queen mother had an important role. The strong Davidic overtones lead to describing Mary and her royal son as united. A woman from the house of David, he says, gave birth to a son who will be the new king and who will reign, whose reign will have no end. Luke also makes this connection. This is the queen mother tradition of the Davidic kingdom. It goes all the way back actually to Isaiah 7.14, where he makes the connection between the virgin and the son who will rule. We conclude that Mary is being given that vocation of queen mother. This is important. Mary's royal office is made even more explicit in the visitation. When I was ordained a priest, I was ordained on the Feast of the Visitation, May 31st, 2014, happiest day of my life. I've never had so many people I love in one place at one time. And all I could think of is all those people were like Mary. They were coming to support someone. Mary came to support Elizabeth not thinking of herself. Those people spent a beautiful Saturday afternoon. They gave up their Saturdays to come be part of that ordination. And that was on the Feast of the Visitation. And I remember thinking about this. And let's look at our next slide because this picture is a beautiful picture of Mary and Elizabeth. Look at that picture of Mary and Elizabeth. Does that look like Elizabeth is dismissing Mary as somebody unimportant? You have nothing to do with the role of salvation. Get out of my face. That's horrendous to even think that. Look at the look of Elizabeth. Elizabeth greets Mary with the title, the mother of my Lord. It was honor. Look at Mary in that picture. She's accepting it. What is Elizabeth doing? She's honoring her. Look at that. It's not worship. This title has great queenly significance. In the royal court, the language of the Near East, the title given, Mother of My Lord, was used, always used to address the queen mother of the reigning king. And they always addressed the king as My Lord, 2 Samuel 24. So when Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord, she's bestowing upon her that title of queen mother. Elizabeth is recognizing the dignity of Mary's role as royal mother of the king. Revelation 12 portrays Mary as the new queen mother in the kingdom of God, sharing in her son's rules. That's what rule. That's why prayers, hymns, art, given in honor to Mary's queenship is fitting Biblically, it's fitting. In honoring her as queen mother, we do not take away from Christ's glory, but we exalt him even more for recognizing the great work he has done through Mary. God has chosen to act through her. It's him, but through her. He chose that. He didn't have to, but he chose it. Understanding Mary as queen mother sheds light 
on her intercessory role as well, just like the queen in the Davidic kingdom that we just read. She serves as the advocate of the people. Last couple paragraphs, praise be, right? Thus, we should approach our queen mother knowing that she carries our petitions to her royal son and that he responds to her as Solomon did to Bathsheba, who Jesus came from that line, mother, I will never refuse you. You have to ask her to help you. So I want to finish with a few words by Father Don Calloway when he pointed out, I just watched one of his talks, and I wanted to mention some things. He, he pointed out, he said, when you venerate someone, it doesn't mean you worship them. It means you hold them up in esteem. You want to imitate them. And our goal is to imitate Mary getting to Jesus. He said, from the beginning, she was held in the highest regard among the apostles. If the apostles can honor her, she's good enough for me. On a, on, and this is interesting. On account of God's goodness and mercy, he created her without stain or original sin. Though she had free will, she chose to do what was always right. I always say Mary is God's loophole to his own justice. You know, God is mercy, but he's also justice. You're going to face one or the other. And if you go to Mary and say, please help me here, I really messed up and Mary acts on your behalf, God's justice is met. You see, God is mercy and justice. Mary isn't. Mary is just mercy because she was created by God. It's not her mercy. It's mercy from God. But God created her, in my opinion, please, this is not church dogmatic revelation, but in my opinion, she's God's own loophole to his own justice. Because when Mary comes to bat for you, she's meeting his justice. She's atoning for your sins. She's praying on your behalf. So she is appeasing the justice of God. So she's his own loophole. His own justice has to be met. And she can meet that for you. It's like Stephen Shire, the priest that got killed. And he said a Hail Mary. And she went to bat for him. And God's justice was met. Man, you want that advocate in your corner. And so this is what happened. After the fall, God knew we were scared, skittish creatures and that we needed somebody to help us, one of our own. Remember, pray means to ask. So we need to pray to her to ask for us, to help us. She's the bridge of that. She's that bridge between man and, and God, which Jesus was God and man. And Mary was given in the garden along with Jesus. What two things did God give in the garden? The promise of a savior and the gift of a mother. The thing is this, yes, Jesus is the link between God and man, but Mary's one of us to help get us to him. All right? Remember, the queen doesn't take away from the king. She leads you to the king. That's her role. Jesus is the only way to the father. Yes, Jesus is the only way to the father, but there's many ways to Jesus. How did Andrew, or sorry, how did Peter get to Jesus? Andrew. How did Nathaniel get to Jesus? Philip. I always say, how did my family get to Jesus? Hopefully me. But the best way to Jesus is his mother. She formed him in her womb. And until recently, you know, Mary was the most common name for newborn children. For the first time in 2,000 years, it's now no longer the case. That's pretty sad. 
She's the most recognized painted person in the history of the world. Sorry, Mona Lisa. The most painted person in the history of the world is Mother Mary. And although created higher, the angels, although created higher than Mary, the angels honor her so much that according to Revelation, at the end of the time, they fight for her. St. Michael and his angels wage war on Satan and his minions in defense. Did you know this? Why did they wage war on Satan? It was in defense of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because it says the dragon was waiting to assume, to consume the child, to eat the child. Listen to this. Revelation 12, verse 5 through 7. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth to devour her child. Then war broke out in heaven. Did you ever make that connection? War broke out in heaven in defense of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't until seminary. I never knew that. It's right there in Scripture. The dragon stood ready to devour the child. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon and threw him out of heaven in defense of Mary. My gosh, if they can do that, and we say, oh, she's blasphemy. Are, are or, uh, uh, Michael and the angels going to go to battle for blasphemy? Crazy. Mary's queenship over the angels shows how God is uniting all of us to himself because once his goal is to win victory once and for all over evil. And he will do it. After the resurrection, Jesus could have taken Mary with him directly into heaven, but he didn't. As perfect as she was, he left her on earth. Why? He left her as an example for us to be perfect disciples. Even the apostles learned from her. The apostles, listen to this, they chose a new man to replace Judas, right? And it says in scripture, Mary graced them with her presence. Scripture says in Acts 1:14, quote, all these devoted themselves with one accord to prayer together with some women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Pious tradition says the very first Marian apparition, which we will talk about first Saturdays, occurred when Mary was still alive. 40 AD, she bilocated to Zaragoza, Spain. Why? to inspire James the Apostle to persevere. Thank you for the letters you've been sending me. Father, persevere. That's what Mary's message to James was. Persevere in your efforts to evangelize. Because you're going to get beaten up, James. And I got a beautiful online comment. It said, Father Chris, persevere. Do not quit to evangelize. God bless you, because that's Mother Mary. Of course, the Apostle James went on to become one of the greatest evangelizers in history. So the apostles may have been the first to physically evangelize the world, but not without Mary's guidance. That's why we call her Queen of the Apostles. And to finish, why do we call her Queen of Martyrs? Mary wasn't killed, ah. Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman says, 
the amount that Mary suffered qualifies her as a martyr. We find evidence of Mary's suffering in Scripture when the prophet Simeon tells her, and you yourself, a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, Luke 2, 34. By uniting herself closest to Jesus, who suffered the most, she took on more pain than anyone. No pain that any of us have is more than she did. So she can help us in times of suffering. But asking for help is not worshiping her. Have you ever asked your neighbor, can you help me? Have you asked, ever asked a sibling, can you help me out here? Of course. I've asked you to help me. I asked you to pray for my family, and I'm praying for you. You guys have written to me, Father, please pray for my family. Absolutely. Catholics don't worship Mary. Non-Catholics say that we do because we pray to her. No, as we said, prayer doesn't mean worship. It can mean to ask. Trust is the most important thing. And this is where I finish because trust is the whole heart of the Bible and the diary of St. Faustina. And you know what trust is? What does trust mean? Trust means you accept the help from someone who offers it to you. If you trust someone, you're going to accept the help they offer you. What greater help could Jesus have offered us than from the cross giving us his very own mother? Take her into your home. This was the words of Jesus. Let us accept the help God has offered us in the garden, the gift of a mother, the promise of a savior, and from the cross. Take her into your home. This is the meaning of the assumption. This is the meaning of the coronation. Let us thank God that he gave us this gift. And again, if you're gonna do a novena, do it now. Because when you incorporate in it the gift of Mary and the coronation coming up, it's going to be powerful. And so with that, we want to share with you the opportunity to spread this faith, be an apostle. As you can see in the next slide, we still have our CDs out called Explaining the Faith. You can get that at shopmercy.org or 800-4-MARIAN. And on our next slide, please join our Marian family. MICprayers.org. Doesn't cost a thing, takes 10 seconds. Be part of our Marian family because you too can share in the joys and the graces of our masses, our rosaries, our prayers, our penances, just like you were a Marian priest or brother. And with that, I describe a lot of this in my book. And that's the final thing. If you haven't got it, it's called Understanding Divine Mercy. And you can get that for any donation, even a dollar. Visit thedivinemercy.org slash UDM or call us at 800-462-7426. Again, I'll spare you from Brother Mark having to play anything at the end because you've been through enough. But I am so grateful to you, our Marian family, and to all those who come here to visit us. May praise be to God and through the intercession of Mother Mary, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. God bless you.
please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.